0: You're listening to a parish podcast, a reimagined faith community. I was recently reading a piece written by a pastor about a church he had founded a number of years ago. When he left, it was a fledgling yet vibrant church, but in the intervening years, it had become troubled. They had developed a thing for celebrity pastors. They didn't always agree about which of them was the best, but they loved being entertained as well as taught by the big guns. Their worship, while still seemingly enthusiastic, had become performance-oriented and even competitive with one trying to outdo another. Sadly, it seemed the congregation had become arrogant over time. They thought they were the pinnacle of spiritual wisdom, and all others were inferior to them, even their founding pastor himself. Although they thought of themselves as progressive, a paternalistic view that the best role for a woman was housewife still seeped through. And then to top it all off, he had heard shocking reports of a sex scandal. He was deeply grieved. You're trying to figure out which of the churches you know of this might be, I'll end your suspense. It was the first century church in Corinth, and I read about it in Paul's first letter to them. Last week we looked at the story of Elijah and a religious community that had abandoned faithful worship in exchange for political power. Elijah was deeply discouraged. So, God took him on a retreat and reset his perspective. He was encouraged not to focus on the failings of Ahab and the Hebrew people, but to focus on God and God's faithfulness. Today, we're looking at the story of another faith community gone astray. We want to see how Paul, their faithful, but at the moment discouraged pastor, deals with the situation because that may be relevant for us at a time when we see so much failure in the church. Paul, perhaps unsurprisingly, in the first 12 chapters of his letter, gives specific advice on each of the contentious issues facing them. But then he takes a step back, takes a big breath, and says, Now I'm going to show you a better way, a much better way. Let's hear how he describes that way. If I speak in human languages or even in those of angels but do not have love, then I've become a clanging gong or else a clashing cymbal. And if I should have prophetic gifts and know all mysteries, all knowledge too, have faith to move mountains, but have no love, I'm nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor and for pride's sake, my very body, but do not have love, it's useless to me. Love's great-hearted. Love is kind, knows no jealousy, makes no fuss, is not puffed up, no shameless ways, doesn't force its rightful claim, doesn't rage or bear a grudge, doesn't cheer at others' harm, rejoices rather in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, love hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But prophecies will be abolished, tongues will stop, and knowledge, too, will be done away. We know, you see, in part, we prophesy in part, but with perfection the partial is abolished. As a child I spoke and thought and reasoned like a child. When I grew up, I threw off childish ways. For at the moment all that we can see are puzzling reflections in a mirror. Then, face to face, I know in part for now but then I'll know completely, through and through, even as I'm completely known. So now, faith, hope, and love remain, these three, and of them, love is the greatest. Last week, we faced the current dysfunction in the church by standing with Elijah and seeing the present day in the context of the grand, sweeping story of God's saving work. And if we needed a telescope to see all of that, today we're going to need a magnifying glass because Paul's big-picture response to the troubled church at Corinth is not to double down on his personal authority or to bombard them with intricate theological arguments, which we know from his other letters he was quite capable of, but to focus them on the nature of their everyday interactions with the people they lived with, people in their homes, their workplaces, and yes, in their church. The kinds of interactions that prompted them to impatience, unhelpful comparisons, retaliatory rudeness, rejection, and self-protection. In the graininess and grittiness of those everyday interactions, Paul says, let me tell you about a better way. Paul begins the chapter with some striking contrasts. Perhaps because for many of us this is a familiar chapter, they are no longer jarring for us. I tried to think how Paul might have framed these contrasts if he were writing today. Perhaps you can preach so eloquently that 10,000 people come to hear you every Sunday, but if your ministry isn't rooted in love, it's meaningless. Your worship team was just nominated for a Juno Award or a Grammy, but if their songs don't spring from love, they're worthless. You can have a healing ministry that draws people from around the world and delivers dramatic miracles every week, but if it's not based on love, it's worthless. We're so conditioned to measure things by their results, their impact, to evaluate things based on external measures of success, that these contrasts don't seem quite fair. Isn't Paul being a bit harsh to dismiss those achievements? When I was working in the health charity sector, there was a huge pressure on us to be able to show the impact of donor dollars. Donors wanted to know how many kids we sent to summer camp or what innovative treatments had come directly from the research we funded. We presumed they didn't care if the staff in the charity treated each other kindly. They just wanted to see results. But Paul says that's not how the church is supposed to operate. The starting place must be love, or the rest is just self-serving spectacle. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and anti-Nazi activist, wrote about what ministry that flows out of love would look like in his book Life Together. He describes a progression of ways we can minister that flow out of love rather than competition or ego. I'll warn you in advance, you have to get to step five before you get to open your mouth. He begins with the ministry of holding one's tongue. It's so tempting to see our role as fixing things, offering solutions, since we can see other people's problems so clearly. Jesus might remind us that we need to get the log out of our own eye before we can address the speck in our friend's eye. And Bonhoeffer makes that teaching practical by telling us to just be silent. And I'm sure if writing today, he would have included silence on social media, resisting the urge to weigh in on a debate when our motive is not love, but a need to be right or to be smarter than. Bonhoeffer next offers the ministry of meekness. So if having to keep silent didn't curb our overactive ego, a commitment to meekness should help. Next, the ministry of listening. How important this ministry is. Those of you who have faced bereavement know there are no words that can fix it, can take away the grief. But oh, how helpful when someone will just come and attentively listen to our pain. Next, the ministry of helpfulness, offering practical acts of kindness and Unlike the priest and Levite who passed by the unfortunate man in the story of the Good Samaritan, Bonhoeffer points out that we need to be willing to be interrupted from our important work to serve others in tangible ways. Next, the ministry of bearing, literally putting up with the people we find annoying and difficult, and doing so out of genuine love, not condescension. And after all of that, Bonhoeffer offers that we may be ready to speak, prepared for the ministry of proclaiming the word. It's pretty clear that Paul felt the church in Corinth had sort of jumped over the first four ministries. That what went on in their church on Sunday mornings did not spring from a mature and generous love. And because of that, Paul declares their efforts worthless I find it interesting to note that Paul doesn't particularly say the impact was worthless. For example, presumably the people who were healed through it thought it was worthwhile. But rather, he says that it doesn't benefit the one doing the ministry. He says, if I do those great things, I am nothing, and it's worthless to me. This is a good reminder that ultimately, the reason God gives me a ministry is not because I'm the best thing since sliced bread. It's because God wants to give me a chance to grow, and if my efforts don't spring from love, that won't happen. Next, Paul goes on to elaborate on the nature of the love he is talking about. Again, familiarity may be our enemy here. We have heard these words so often that they can just slide right past us. Maybe we need to stop and ask, how's that going for me? Someone once suggested that one way for me to find out is to replace love in the text with my name and see how it reads. Jan is patient and kind. She's not jealous or boastful or rude. Oops. I'm sometimes kind, but patient not so much. Then I do okay for the next few until I get to Jan does not insist on her own way. Ouch. You know, it's it's not that I'm controlling, it's just that I've thought it through really well, and I have the best plan. This kind of love is far more than just gritting our teeth and pasting on a fake smile when we run into someone we don't like. Paul challenges his reader to a high standard of love. This is PhD-level love. C.S. Lewis once said that God is easy to please but hard to satisfy that God is pleased, even delighted, when we take the slightest steps toward the life of the kingdom, but that God will not be satisfied until we attain to this radical love that Jesus modeled. And what would Peterborough look like if our lives and our family life here at the parish were characterized by a love that is patient? Greek here is to be of a long spirit. I like that a spirit long enough that it doesn't give up on people. Love that is kind, that is always looking for practical ways to show itself helpful or generous. Love that's not envious, that is genuinely pleased for the other when they get the thing that we might have wanted. Love that isn't boastful, not interested in showing itself off because it would rather delight in the other. Love that isn't puffed up, but happy to take the back seat. Love that isn't rude or disrespectful. Love that doesn't insist on its own way, but delights in accommodating others. And maybe on social media doesn't insist that its way or its truth is the only way. Love that isn't thin-skinned, doesn't easily take offense. And when hurt, doesn't harbor resentment. Love that doesn't rejoice when someone fails, no schadenfreude here. Love that rejoices in the truth. This has the feel for me of Philippians 4.8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, and so on, think about these things. This is a love that's preoccupied with the good and lovely, not the failures and disgrace of others. It's a love that bears all things. Bear, here, has both the sense of carrying the load, but... Also, keeping confidences. A love that carries your sorrows without using them as fodder for gossip. A love that believes all things. Not in the sense of believing that the earth is flat. No, this is a love that believes that the other is actually doing the best they can, even if it seems to us that they are just being a jerk. A love that is always hopeful for better things. And finally, a love that endures all things. That cannot be extinguished. This is a love that can't just be restricted to the people we like, although some days even that can be a tall order, but it's a love that shines brightest when we're able to extend it to the people who irritate and annoy us. If those were the behaviors and attitudes that characterized our community here at the parish, we would have far more impact on Peterborough than if we got better preachers, more famous musicians, or had a more impactful giving program. Paul says this love is the better way. Paul ends the chapter with a lovely peek into the future age where the dwelling place of God will once again be with people. He talks about the three theological virtues, faith, Hope and love, but he points out that hope will be eclipsed by the full reality of God's kingdom, and faith will be made obsolete when we actually see God. But even in that realm, love will have enduring relevance. Paul concludes that while we need all three faith, hope, and love it is love that's the greatest. I think it's not by accident that this demanding call to love is given to the church at Corinth. You might think it would have been more reasonable to ask of a church that was already doing pretty well, like the ones at Thessalonica or Philippi. But while it may have been less of a stretch for them, it is the church at Corinth that really needs to be directed on this better way. There were people in the church who were not easy to love, the arrogant ones, the show-offs, the control freaks, those who, whose behavior was an embarrassment, the sexually immoral. But Paul says the way forward is to learn to love even them. We can get through most of our days running on just like. We may think we're doing okay on the love front because we like the people who like us and are like us. But that's not the kind of crowd Paul is sending this message to. It's a congregation full of friction and dysfunction. Paul even bemoans the fact that some of them are suing each other in civil courts. It's to those people that he gives the invitation to love, to love without envy, resentment, or bitterness, to love with a love that believes the best of them and hopes the best for them. The church of the 21st century is in tumult as Christendom, the collusion with empire that made the church powerful in the past, Grinds to a halt. And as I watch some segments of that alliance spiral down, I may feel smug, but rejoicing in the demise of factions I don't like is not on the table. Paul says those are the very people I need to love. I don't share all of this with you to burden you, but because I'm finding that for me, freedom lies on the other side of unlove, when I get past it and learn to love. When we truly love, we get to set down a bunch of burdens that really have become too heavy for us to carry. Burdens of resentment, competition, self-protection, envy, and bitterness. The burden of needing to be right and needing to fix people. I don't need to fix people. I just need to love them. I find that tremendously freeing. Fifty-five years ago, the hippies in San Francisco declared the summer of love. And while their notion of love may not totally have lined up with St. Paul's, I wonder if we should resurrect the idea. Our world is on fire, and that gives us a whole panoply of people that it's easy to hate. People of a particular political stripe, a particular theological bent, people who deny climate change, or people who support carbon taxing, people with any position on the pandemic that differs from mine or even the beleaguered service person at my local store who has retreated into being passive-aggressive. I wonder what would happen if in the face of all that we made this a summer of love. Let's try it and find out.